Dr. Jesse Pappenberg, you're here, finally. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here, Dave. This is episode one. I'm very glad that you're actually the first guest that we have on this uh, show, this podcast and, and project. Um, Jesse Pappenberg is a, um, he's a star in my book. Um, he's a star in many people's, many people's books. He's, um, he's a microbiologist. He's an infectious diseases specialist, and he's a pediatrician at the Montreal Children's. You're someone that I've known for a very, very long time who I have a tremendous amount of, of respect and admiration for. So I'm, I'm really, really thrilled that you're the one that gets to cut the, uh, cut the rope with us today. So thank you for, for joining us. We're a year into this pandemic. And um, it's been a marathon. How do you feel? Yeah, it's been it's been a marathon, uh, you know, uh, I would say from a personal perspective, there's just no end to the amount of work that that, uh, that I can do or that's needed to be done. And certainly, you know, there are so many people that are, are, are chipping in from, if I'm thinking professionally, uh, you know, from in the medical field or, or, or other fields that are related to, uh, to, to fighting this pandemic. Um, so it's been hard because um, there, as I said, there's just limitless amounts of potential projects uh, and, and things that we can try and do to just, you know, uh, chip away uh, each in our own way uh, at all the different uh, issues that have come up and issues. I mean, the issues have been changing almost weekly. So it's also been fascinating in that sense uh, that uh, we have learned so much in the last 13 months uh, or so. Uh, and, and who would have thought, um, you know, when you think back to March of 2020, when the spit was really hitting the fan and we were shutting things down, that by the end of the calendar year, there would already be vaccines available for use that are highly effective at preventing symptomatic infection. I mean, not many experts would have predicted that it would happen so quickly and with such success. Do you feel that the, the fact that science has evolved rapidly in the last year out of necessity, what is the lasting impact of, of that kind of cadence on the medical field going forward? Oh, I think people who do meta-research are going to have a field day with with uh, this natural experiment uh, in terms of, by meta-research, I mean like uh, researching the research. And uh, there's been an explosion of publications and studies. And, and with that, there's a lot of good. Like we've obviously moved at light speed in terms of generating knowledge and generating valid knowledge, good knowledge, um, you know, whether it be with diagnostics, with the vaccines and with therapeutics as well. Just think back to initially, we, we didn't know what to treat. The, these infections with and, and and people were throwing just about anything at it like uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine yeah. if you remember I, I, I uh, vaguely remember that yes that yeah. uh, and and it really it, it 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 did take people coming together across the world to put together uh, um, high quality studies to show that that drug did not work and it's just as important to show which drugs work as the ones that don't, because you don't want to be causing harm with a drug that has some side effects if it's not going to give you any benefit. And yet there is this mountain of skepticism that's out there, um, which, which could obviously, which is in 
contrast to, you know, everything that you're saying right now, you know, the naysaying, the anti-vaxxing, the apprehension. Is this something that you feel, particularly with COVID, has hit, you know, another level or is it another dimension or is this something that you've had to deal with um, in your practice? I would say that we have definitely had to deal with, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, vaccine hesitancy for years now. And vaccine hesitancy is is really a spectrum, right, of, of behaviors and attitudes that can go from complete, uh, absolute refusal to have anything to do with that type of uh, preventive medicine to perhaps having just some questions or uncertainties about either a specific product or, um, you know, a sequence of vaccines or the schedule or, or... so there's, there's, it's, uh, it, you know, it's hard to lump all these things together. But I think what, what we have now in 2020 and 2021 is, is just obviously uh, means of communications between persons. It, it's, it's unbelievable with whether it be social media or, or, uh, or just the ability to, to speak to somebody, you know, across the globe and, and, and get their opinion about something. Um, and, 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 and a deluge of information out there and some of it being solid, verifiable and valid and others being somebody's opinion or somebody's interpretation of a well-performed study, uh, but their interpretation might not be correct either. So um, it's it's certainly it's it's a huge challenge, uh, and 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 we've seen it at different at different times uh, focus in on perhaps different aspects of of the pandemic and and it, the pandemic response. Uh, at, at one point, I don't know if you remember, there was a huge there was a huge well, there was controversy about are the PCR based tests too sensitive and yeah. they're and we're actually falsely you know elevating the number of cases and and it's not uh, you know that it's it's overestimating the the size of the the pandemic. When the government flipped, you know, in terms of advocating the use and the wearing of masks, initially it was it was seen as something that was not laughable but not impactful to prevent the spread. Now it is part of who we are. It's an extension of our faces. Well, I think the mask issue is is interesting, and then in in, in and I, I you know I noticed you used the word flipped uh, as as a, you know kind of a flip flop as a and and it's it's usually kind of derogatory, right? That the, right. somebody who flip flops is is not making you know they're, they're not able to choose properly, and you can't or can't they were be trusted. Wrong and then they and yeah. then they they or they they come to realize that they were wrong. There's so many ways to to interpret that, right? Yeah. And 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 but at the same time. You know, we were all, what's that expression? We were all building this plane as we were flying it. Yeah. Or, or So there was new information coming in and uh, was, I think, was were public health officials slow in adopting masks in North America or in Canada? They were probably too slow, yeah. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, when you go into a certain situation with a certain paradigm, uh, and you're faced also with constraints, such as the fact that we didn't have unlimited supplies of medical-grade masks at the time. Um, and we just didn't know how the public was going to react also to that type, those types of measures. Um, so uh, that as new information came, or as, the, as, our, as science evolved, the guidelines and recommend, recommendations evolved as well. And... Even if it's based in science, and even if, it, if as we, we learn more about it, we say, okay, now we're going to 
pivot a little bit because this is what we think is the right thing to do now. Um, a part of being successful in whatever intervention that is, is going to be the messaging. And now everything, the messaging needs to be on point right from the get-go because things are moving so fast. The messaging needs to be clear and uh, it hasn't always been the case. When you look at um, what you've seen um, at the children's hospital, we know that children don't react to the virus typically um, the way adults do. And we know that various, you know, adults themselves don't all react the same. That As they get older and more compromised, um, the, obviously the impact is more drastic. What have you seen typically at the hospital in terms of how, how sick children have gotten and how many s- sick children have come through the hospital doors? Well, I think, first of all, you're, you're right. The, the, the number one observation has been that kids don't get as sick as adults. It's just that, you know, they, they, they have, there's probably a higher proportion of kids who have asymptomatic infections, so really not noticeable at all to anybody. Uh, or if they do get a symptomatic infection, it'll tend to be limited to the upper respiratory tract. So, you know, like cough and cold type syndrome, uh, uh, maybe some fever, uh, but not not really ill enough to require hospitalization. And even though kids uh, represent, um, you know, I think roughly 30% of infections these days, uh, 25 to 30%, depending on what part of the country you're in, um, they still only represent less than 1% of hospitalizations. So think about it. Yeah. You know, that there, there, there's a lot of in- kids that are getting infected, but very, very few of them that are getting sick enough to get hospitalized. And what do we know about how they are able to be conduits to infect the adults? Because I know that has also that has changed a little bit and evolved over time, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that initially we had this thinking that somehow kids were protected from getting infected. Uh, and certainly we weren't, we weren't detecting as many infections in kids. Uh, and even studies that were looking at household transmission, it looked like kids were less frequently the index case or the case that would spread to other people in the household. Um, and then with a little bit more understanding of what's going on, we've come to realize that perhaps there was a little bit of bias in those studies in that uh, children were less frequently getting detected as the first case because they may not have had symptoms to begin with. Um, and they may have been the, 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 the person that brought the case into the household. Uh, that being said, um, there, there are other data out there that still seem to suggest that Kids do play a role in household, and sorry, in community transmission. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But the major drivers of community transmission, uh, uh, you know, this these data coming from the states uh, really kind of show this are, are the 20 to 40 year olds uh, that the infections in this group age group tend to proceed and continue to drive. Uh, a local spread of the virus. And there's a medical reason for that? Um, I think it has much more to do with, uh, there, I think there are two things. One that, uh, that is, is, is more social. So the, the social interactions and mixing that young adults have, especially young adults in the workforce. Um, uh, and that has part of what 
you know, to do with with how their role in, in community transmission. Um, and then there's also, uh, this is still being worked out, and it's, it's mostly still hypothesis, uh, but um, the type of infections that you've had in your recent past uh, also, to a certain degree, modify your risk of infection with other viruses. And we think that some of the common cold coronaviruses uh, that are perhaps more prevalent in kids uh, so uh, uh, have offered some degree of protection or ability for kids to not get as sick or perhaps not shed as much virus or not shed as much infectious virus. Um, but this is really kind of complicated stuff that we're just starting to kind of scratch away at the surface. Can you understand um, if we take that, can you reconcile that with apprehension that parents would have in terms of eventually vaccinating their children against COVID-19. Yeah, so I think I think what you're you're getting at is um considering the fact that kids seem to be less at risk for developing a severe COVID infection, um how do we make decisions about vaccinating this part of our population? Is that is that what you're you're yeah. asking? Yeah. Um, so the first thing is, is I think we're all aware of that from a, from a public health perspective, from, you know, a vaccinology perspective. So we're doing it in a stepwise manner. So uh, I don't know if you're aware, but uh, for instance, uh, the Pfizer vaccine is the first to have completed a randomized trial in uh, 12 to 15 year olds. And the data are really seem to be very good in terms of uh, extremely high efficacy and no signals related to uh, adverse events that would be beyond what was already expected, already known in the adult uh, population. And, and that kind of makes sense because over 12, we, we expect that kids' immune system is going to respond in a way that's pretty similar to uh, an adult uh, immune system. Um, so, so if I'm thinking ahead, like in the immediate future, um, uh, those data have already been submitted to the FDA and they're going to be, or if they're not, they may have already been submitted to Health Canada as well. Uh, and I think that the timeline for potentially vaccinating children above age 12 will be September. So how does that, like, what is that, like, is that making people anxious or is that, are people really looking forward to? What do you, that's actually one of my questions. Are yeah. you seeing apprehension? Or are you seeing people that are eager to get their, their children inoculated? I, th I think that you could ask, uh, you know, five of your friends who have kids uh, and, and you might get five different answers. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that, you know, what we need to, there's, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that the way out of this pandemic and a way, the way back to our a normal life in Canada and, and around the world really is through vaccination. And that's, that's the outlet. That's the that's the way out. That is the, clearly the way out. And if you look at the modeling that's being done now in the United States and in Canada, uh, uh, you, I, I, we we can see a light at the end of the tunnel. And it's the the, the number one factor that will determine whether or not we can indeed go through uh, a fall and winter in 2021-2022 that is almost normal, or it, it is is if we reach. Uh, our targets for vaccination, if we are successful in our vaccination campaigns. 
and and children are a, a, a lo- big chunk of the the Canadian population, and uh, they. So you can't achieve herd immunity without vaccinating children. I I, I I'm pretty. I, I don't see any way of doing that without vaccinating kids. If people are reticent to vaccinate their children, what could that mean about the potential perpetuity of the virus? Well, I think people are still, uh, you know, we're, we're nobody has a crystal ball in terms of what will happen to SARS-CoV-2 in a post-pandemic it, it world. Is it going to become just another influenza-like illness? And I'm saying just another influenza-like illness, but every year influenza hospital, you know, hospitalizations across Canada, you know, for the elderly, for the very young, it's it's a huge burden. Mortality influenza year in year out, it's 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 a major public health concern. But I think that. What we're hoping for is that SARS-CoV-2 is going to become another seasonal respiratory virus that will uh, in, 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 indeed uh, cause a burden of disease, but not disproportionate to other viruses that we know. So it's here to stay to a certain extent is, is what you, you I, would anticipate? I, I, I would think so. Uh, but how, like, when are we going to get to that point where it is for most people an annoyance and not a you know a five ten percent risk of uh, hospitalization or death is is I think that that's where the concept of herd, herd immunity comes in because you know if you think about it even if uh, we've protected with really good vaccines uh, a large proportion of our most vulnerable. None of these vaccines is, uh, is perfect. Uh, some people, for whatever reason, wouldn't have been able to have gotten get, to get the vaccine, or or, or, or will uh, their immune system just won't have responded to it very well. And the the more the less population level immunity there is, the more transmission there is, and the more transmission there is, you just eventually wind up, you know, hitting those people that are are, are susceptible to it and are going to get sick, uh, potentially get very sick and require hospitalization and all the issues that go around with that, not only for the individual, but from society as a whole that, you know, the burden on, on our healthcare system. So to just get back to the idea of like, well, you know, what's going to happen to, you know, if we, if we, if we don't vaccinate, you know, our children when the time comes, uh, maybe we can think about it. Well, what, what's going to happen if we do? And, uh, think about the benefits that vaccination could could bring to us, and just even just starting off with those twelve to fifteen year olds, um, you know, uh, children across Canada have been you know doing high school or middle school uh, from you know distance learning, and I think that that is although it was necessary for a certain amount of time. Uh, I think that we need in-person schooling from uh, a developmental perspective, a social perspective. We need our teenagers to grow up together and learn those skills and get those experiences that can only be uh, 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 achieved in in group settings. Uh, and I think that vaccinating this older part of our, our pediatric population will allow you know that that aspect to happen in a much safer and less uh, truncated manner that we've been sending kids to school pulling them back shutting them down opening up again um, and and I'm not on the front lines of in terms of mental health uh, but I can tell you you know friends of mine who work in the Montreal Children's Hospital emergency department, they, they feel it. They feel the distress of 
these older kids, these teenagers who have had their, their social structures upended. It's pretty much their, how much you feed off that, that social interaction at that age. I mean, it's pretty much your entire life. It's that point in your life where you start rejecting your parents because you derive so much self-worth and satisfaction from that social setting. If that's totally cut off from them, it's, it's, it's pretty heartbreaking when you think about it. It's very disheartening. Yeah, it's it's been it's been either cut off or or modulated through through screens, yeah. you know that and 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 I think that's not a positive thing. So so if I, what I'm looking at is you know when I think of the you know the different lights I see at the end of this tunnel, one of them is is, is getting our our teenagers protected and getting schools uh, to be a, a really safe place. For them to interact in the way that they they need to interact. Have you had parents um, come to you in the recent months and say, "We're really worried about vaccinating our child," um, and where you've had to really alleviate concerns? Honestly, I, I have not yet, and I think that's because it, we're still we're still not there collectively, even right. I think we're still not. Most people are not thinking about vaccinating their kids. The only people that have come forward to me are individuals who have said i have you know kids of this age or that age do you know of any studies that are where they, they could get enrolled into to to so they can get be part of a, a vaccine study in in, in children because they want their kids to have that opportunity to even though they obviously they would be randomized to either get the vaccine or to get a placebo uh, they would like that opportunity as soon as possible even before it becomes available at a larger scale so those are the people that have come to see me but that just might be because of my the type of work that i do uh, perhaps people who are more hesitant aren't aren't inclined to come see me because they feel that maybe my narrative won't fit with what their uh, their 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 concerns are. I, I don't know, but um, but I think that collectively we're we're still like like we just had uh, uh, you know when 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 forty five uh, people for age forty five and up were allowed to get uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine here in Quebec. There was uh, quite a, uh, you know, I think there was a, a part of that population that really, really went for it and really ran for it. And, and they, they wanted it and they got it quickly. Um, and we're still working our way kind of down the ladder in terms of age, because age is the number one risk factor for severe disease. Um, and and, and we're, we're, we're still, I think, not yet either excited nor worried about vaccinating kids because it seems like we're, 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 we're not there yet. But as I said, for there, I would say that in September, there's a good chance that we're going to start uh, looking at vaccinating some of these older kids. But for younger age groups, not before 2022. And, and the reason for that is really it needs to be done in a very stepwise manner um, because as, as you rightly pointed out, because the, the individual's benefit of being vaccinated will potentially decrease as they they, they get young, as you know, as they're younger. Uh, in other words, the protection that you know what is the protection we're offering? Well, it's it's against a milder form of disease, principally. Uh, then we have to make really sure that that product is also safe in that age group. So that's why it's going to be a stepwise uh, evaluation. Do we look at this? this correlation between we vaccinate them, we vaccinate children last because they seem to be the less impacted in the development of a vaccine in those different stages. Are children always seen as 
the last ones to receive the vaccine. That's a great point. I, and I'd actually never, never really contemplated that because, um, and I'll tell you that just as a, in general, whether for, for, for drugs or vaccines, um, these products are usually initially tested as they go through the different phases of the development process. Phase one trials, we're looking just at, uh, you know, principally at safety. Phase two, where we're looking a little bit as well, does it does it do what we're expecting it to do? And, and, and we're getting more numbers to see whether it's safe. And then phase three, where you're really powered to be able to say, well, does it make a significant difference in, in, in what it's supposed to do? And are we seeing any sort of side effects that, that, you know, that might be worrisome with this, uh, this product? Children are, uh, in a lot of ways, uh, uh, you know, I guess disadvantaged by the fact that, uh, um, um, the, these products always get evaluated in adults first because we want to make sure that they're safe, in, you know, in in adults before we start, you know, uh, uh, you know, doing these tests on, on kids. And that would be the same thing, for example, for like a, a like the chickenpox or the measles, like these diseases that are or viruses, sorry, that are that are that are much more uh, child centric. The the way that those vaccines were developed were always. Um, tested on adults first and then on children, even though we were trying to target children ultimately? Well, some of the, in the initial studies would have been done on adults first, yes. Um, but then for if you're looking at the, the, uh, the actual efficacy of the vaccine to prevent disease, then absolutely it was studied in, in, in children at a large scale once we saw that it was safe in adults and then safe in small numbers of children. And then we went bigger studies to look at, uh, at the efficacy in kids. Um, we do a lot in, in, in vaccines, we do a lot of uh, what we call bridging studies or, or immunogenicity studies where um, you know, especially when if the outcome is very rare or is relatively rare and you need to do really large scale studies to be able to observe a difference in groups uh, of this rare outcome. Um, sometimes we can if we if we've established that, for instance, the, the a certain level of antibodies in the blood is equip is is uh, offers protection, uh, then instead of doing a study that looks at uh, uh, does the disease occur in in this population, um, what we can do is 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 vaccinate a smaller number of people and say, well, do they get protective levels of antibodies uh, from from this product? And if so, we infer that they're they're protected at that point. Um, and that often is enough, uh, depending on how well the product's been studied in other groups, uh, to allow for its licensure and its use uh, uh, more broadly. Um, so we sometimes see that in, in in pediatrics. What would you see as a valid concern that a parent would have to uh, to not want to vaccinate a child are there medical arguments and is there medical evidence to back that argument or that position up so are are you talking about vaccines in general or for well for... we could look at if we look at covid right now um do you see from from how things have evolved and how this vaccine has has been developed are there legitimate arguments against vaccinating in specific circumstances as far as children are concerned? Well, I think that any parent who has concerns, I think that that it's important to validate them in the sense that it's 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 good that you, that you know that everybody kind of I think everybody wants to do the right thing for their kids, 
like I got kind of start off from that perspective that whoever is that's across from you, really what they want is that their kid be happy and healthy. Yeah. Um, that's a good point. So, so, so once, once we're, 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 we're like, it's established that both of us have that same, same goal in mind, then the question is, well, what is it that's worrying somebody or what is, what is the concern that that person has? And it's, it's really variable and it's, it's sometimes really surprising to hear what it is that a parent is worried about with regards to a specific vaccine or vaccines in general. And it has oftentimes has to do with their own lived experience, you know, or, uh, or, or what they've heard of experiences of, of friends or, 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 or things that they've, they've, they've read or, or, or heard on, you know, on, on TV or social media or whatever. Um, and and before before understanding that, there's no point in going on into any sort of spiel about about vaccines because you might just be you know missing the boat completely. And and some people are really going to respond well to data and facts and say, well, you know, this is the risk that's posed by the disease, and this is the, these are the potential benefits of the vaccine, and we we've studied this vaccine and we know that you know there are there are these side effects. Uh, the severe ones are extremely rare. Uh, the other the the ones that are more common are easy to handle uh, and and are temporary. And if you lay that out to them, then it becomes a very easy sell or easy decision for them to make. Um, if if other we people... dispel the, the, like the, um, not necessarily dispel, we, if we address the, um, the larger um, theories, for example, um, the rollout is too quick. There's no way that a, 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 an efficient, um, and, and, a, and a properly working vaccine and a safe vaccine could be developed in eight or nine months. You know, that's the one thing that we hear over and over again. What's your response to that? Yeah, well, it, it is amazing. It is uh, uh, jaw-dropping, but it didn't come out of nowhere. It's, it's not like in 2020, all of a sudden, we had people start to think about these vaccines, there have been people who've been working their entire professional lives on the 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 methods uh, and the the technologies had been developed for 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 these vaccines. So we've had tremendous advances in genomics and our, our, our you know all sorts of genetic technologies that allowed for the mRNA vaccines to be even an idea. And then these vaccines have been studied for other purposes already. So this was a platform that was kind of revved up and ready to go uh so the, and and just the platform itself allowed for very once the sequence of the 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 virus had been uh, uh distributed worldwide um, different people or different groups were able to use that information to develop vaccines very quickly and the mrna vaccine is one platform that in particular it's very fast to be able to develop uh, uh the the product so so i think the first thing is that you know the, the uh, uh these these vaccines are are new, but they're not new. Like like I said, there have been groups that have been working on either the adenovirus vector vaccines or the mRNA vaccines for for literally decades, um, and and we've learned a lot also just from SARS, the the initial SARS, from from MERS, uh, from Ebola, from Zika. There was a lot of work trying to develop vaccines for these epidemics and quickly. To develop them quickly, yeah, and and strategies to be able to do that. Um, and they've and, been efficient. 
so that has we, we've we've learned from mistakes and also uh, or inefficiencies uh, and 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 developed uh, I would say the the collaboration has been colossal. Uh, if you think about you know uh, multinational companies joining together to uh, realizing that you know they have one strength, they have one strength together, they can you know do something uh, much more expediently. So the co- level of collaboration is 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 unheard of. And 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 finally, I, I think that and perhaps from my perspective, most importantly, is that these phase one, two, three trials have all been done. Uh, instead of being done one after another, they've all start kind of started in parallel, and that that saved a lot of time. Um, but the bottom line is that if you think about the mRNA vaccines, they they they, they had you know forty thousand people that were uh, evaluated in these each for each of these products. Same thing for AstraZeneca, uh, so tens of thousands of people that were uh, the, the the subjects that were evaluated, you know, placebo or the the actual product, to look at uh, to give the power to be a statistical power to see that the, do these vaccines work or not. And what are the side effects that we need to be concerned about? So, and then from a regulatory perspective, so Health Canada, the FDA, they look at these data and they then decide, is this product A, safe? And B, does it do what it's supposed to do? Is it efficient? And that process has not, it is again, like obviously Health Canada has, everything is fast tracked and, and things are looked at as quickly as possible. But at the same time, it's still, you know, the uh, evaluated in a very thorough manner and, and, and in ways beyond what we'd even imagine, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the quality assurance of the, the, the product itself, how, like how the manufacturers have to show that in each vial that what what is in there and make sure that from batch to batch, it's the same thing, whether it's produced in their their North American factory or produced in their European factory. So there's a lot of information in that Health Canada or FDA uh, uh, submission that you know we like doesn't get any media attention, but it's important from a quality perspective. So that still is being that's being checked, and we're using the same parameters and these para- uh, that we that we would for any other product. And in fact, these parameters were set out a priori saying that we you know in order to approve a vaccine we're not going to do it unless it meets certain you know certain requirements and the FDA and Health Canada have both been doing that um you know quickly but still very thoroughly and the last thing is okay once these products have then made it onto the market um, there's what we call phase four studies where so post-marketing. So once the studies are, once the products are being used outside of the, the setting of a trial, but in the field, um, it, it's been amazing for me to see how there's been some tremendous data coming out of the UK. And we've learned so much from the UK in terms of uh, what is the effectiveness of the first dose of either the mRNA vaccines or the AstraZeneca vaccine? And it's allowed us to spread out the interval between our doses with some good epidemiologic data to show that, yeah, the first dose offers really good protection. The second dose bumps it up, but the marginal benefit is not enough to say that we everybody should get their, their first two doses. So, so what are the stats now for the first dose? Where are we at now? Yeah, so we know that... Uh, it, in particular, in otherwise healthy, relatively young adults, uh, we're looking at roughly 80% uh, protection against getting any sort of infection and probably higher than that against uh, hospitalization and death. Now, 
the numbers are a, a little bit lower for the elderly uh, or those in long-term care facilities, but still really good for protecting against hospitalization and death above 80% for, for both of those. So, um, I, you know, I think we're at a point now where a lot of jurisdictions are now that they've been able to give a first dose to the most vulnerable and are kind of moving down the line. Uh, we're definitely looking at giving that second dose to perhaps very specific populations, whether it be uh, people who have known uh, immunodeficiencies or immu- immunocompromised state like a, a transplant recipient. Uh, we know that in these people, they don't have as good of an antibody response. So probably we're going to start vac- giving that second dose sooner for some very specific populations or in long-term care facilities, we're due now for that second dose. Let's look at another theory that we've heard often just in the, in the realm of, of vaccination is that big pharma um, is a, um, a greedy, corporately driven entity um, and that has, you know, that, those motives in mind that we should be weary of that. When we take that idea or that perception that many people have and we combine that with today's pandemic, how do you, how do you alleviate those concerns or how do you address that? That's this apprehension that Big Pharma is not necessarily seen by everyone as, as, an, as an ally in here well, I, I can tell you myself that uh, you know anything and any 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 process whereby there are uh, uh, financial interests involved, I think we need to have a certain degree of skepticism or a healthy degree of skepticism um, when looking at those at those data um, and. Uh, on on the other hand, uh, you know, as a public health person with a public health perspective and epidemiologist, I am well equipped to look at the, 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 the data that we have and to see, to make, make decisions whether or not uh, uh, the product is going to do what it's supposed to do. And I, 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 you know, I, I would say that you can definitely, there are definitely flaws in the system and there are going to be uh, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of money spent and a lot of money invested, and a lot of that is public money. Uh, and uh, you know, in the United States, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have been of, of federal funds have been invested in the vaccine development program uh, beyond beyond the rollout, but the, the R and D. Uh, so there has been this joint uh, effort of uh, industry and uh, and government. And we have to make sure that these public funds are being well spent. Um, and to, for, so for me, that, that's my major concern. But to, to think that there is um, a, a somehow a... a um, I do not see any reason to distrust the results that were being observed or to distrust the science that's coming out of it. And some products have worked, some products haven't. And the, 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 the manufacturers that had those products that had whatever problems and they weren't able to get beyond the initial phases, they're readjusting and they're changing their strategies. And I think that just shows that the system is, is really just you know promoting getting as many products as possible that are safe and effective uh, available for distribution across the world. So how do you deal with um, 
this next level of, of um, apprehension or skepticism, um, which I think is probably the most important one that we've had to deal with so far, which is a parent saying, I'm the parent. I know what's best for my child, and I want to decide. I don't want to be told by a doctor, by a judge, by a lawyer, by you know a government body how I'm going to decide how to best protect my child. So how do we deal with that concern? I mean, it's, it's, it's tough because, and I have to tell you, maybe I'm not the best equipped for this because I'm not a behavioral scientist. Uh, you know, my background's more in epidemiology and, 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 and uh, infectious diseases. But uh, you, you have to try and find a way to reach that person so that they feel that they're empowered to make the right decision for their child. And I think fundamentally people that's what they want i think we, you know we mentioned that before everybody wants their child's best interests and uh, you just have to find out what it is that is making that person either motivated what would motivate them to 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 to, to protect their child with a vaccine or or what are they scared of or what is it that is concerning them with regards to the use of a of a vaccine uh, and, and certainly there are some people who are, you know, and have an anti-establishment bend to them that anything that is forced upon them, they will view with distrust. Um, and As a I, violation of their right to choose. Yeah, and I don't know. I think that these people generally, like, uh, need to need to be shown the, the benefits that they personally and society as a whole might get from their actions. Uh, as opposed to, so kind of using the carrot more than the stick. There, there have been cases where that have been brought to uh, some judges' um, uh, courtrooms when, with regards to parents that are disagreeing um, about the potential vaccination. And what we are seeing is that the judges are very scientifically driven. I mean, we, it, it does rest on expert opinion. And it's doctors that are advocating whether you need to vaccinate or not. And so it's a very, the courtroom is a very scientifically driven um, environment. And it yields very scientifically driven um, decisions. But it is, it is also, uh, it has to wrestle with the use of or the exercise of parental authority. And when those, when both parents have parental authority and there's a clash on giving the vaccine or not, or any kind of treatment, it, it, it really is a, it, it creates a predicament for the courtroom, for a judge that has to decide, and the judge is not a doctor, you know, based on science um, in terms of what is in the child's superior interest. And so it, it has been um, a situation that, um, you know, there hard, haven't been a whole lot of cases about it. There have been many cases on vaccination, but we do see oftentimes that the reason or the apprehension needs to be rooted in science. And there also has to be some kind of a pattern where if a child has never been vaccinated and all of a sudden after separation, one of the parents says, well, we want to vaccinate. Sometimes that pattern will lead a judge to say, well, child's never been vaccinated. And so why are we changing the decision now? Um, but in a situation where you're in a global pandemic, it, you know, you're looking, hindsight will not be very beneficial from what I'm seeing. Like it really is scientifically driven. And that's, that's a, um, 
you know, that's a concern that uh, I think many judges are, are going to have, which I think this, you know, this conversation is very interesting because if it is rooted in science, then, you know, let's discuss the science and then let's, let's deal with, you know, the big markers that are out there in terms of the apprehension, you know, in terms of pharma and the time, the speed, you know, the side effects. You know, this AstraZeneca situation has been a problem. You know, the, the, it creates uh, a marketing problem, a branding issue, and that has to be dealt with as well. And we've seen politicians, you know, rush to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, just like as our, our prime minister did this week, you know, being proud of the fact that this is, you know, this is the right vaccine to get, despite the fact that there are very rare occurrences of clotting and whatnot. Um, do we know, for example, in terms of the AstraZeneca, what are we seeing that the potential, the small risk that we've seen could also be present in children as well? Well, at this point, I, I would be purely speculative because it hasn't been evaluated. In, There's in no children. testing. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you from, a, from the, the perspective of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, uh, uh, we did a, a, a very in-depth uh, risk-benefit analysis uh, that looked at, obviously, what we know, and there's a lot of unknown around or the, around what we know, but uh, the risks of uh, that are associated with the clots that can follow the vaccine administration versus uh, the protection that the vaccine uh, offers, and that 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 pendulum might swing depend depending on whether or not you're in a very low incidence area where you have very little risk of being infected, especially if you are able to take on your own measures to protect yourself because you're working at home, you don't see another soul. Uh, compared to uh, a person who's a you know a a, a cook uh, in a restaurant and is living in a high uh, high high incidence area and needs to go out there to work um and, and you know they, they they it's a different risk balance uh, risk uh, risk benefit balance uh, and and beyond those numbers and i think you were kind of alluding to some of these things and i don't i wonder to what extent the 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 court uh you know how much weight they put puts in put it puts into these things but there's ethics, uh, and uh, so in, when you think about ethics, you think about principles of autonomy as well. Uh, you think about uh, uh, um, um, uh, the, 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 the good that something's offered to a person. Uh, uh, you think about uh, acceptability with regards to the, the, the individual and the, the community at large. Uh, issues of feasibility, how can we get this done uh, uh, as well? And so, so all these things were also brought up from a uh, public health perspective on how are we going to make a recommendation for this vaccine that we know works, uh, but we also know has this rare but dangerous side effect. And we have to try and strike the right tone for that vaccine to be used in the right way and for people to feel that we've looked at it in a way that is is as in-depth as possible and, and that they're getting enough information out there to be able to make decisions about getting vaccinated. We see often that, I think from a Canadian perspective, there's a certain amount of trust in government. You know, obviously there's, there's skepticism to various degrees, but I think that there is an amount of trust in government in the sense that sacrifice for us and we'll give something back. I think there's a, there's a, there's a, re a reciprocity in our, in our relationship with government um, that we may, that's very European, I feel, 
that, you know, well, you'll pay a higher amount of taxes and theoretically we're supposed to give you, you know, back. I think it's questionable as to whether we're getting full value on our dollar. But um, so I think that that is something that plays in favor of, you know, having this collective acceptance of, well, let's do this together, you know, just like we, we all pay into this communal pot to have universal health care. Let's do this together. Let's lock down together. Let's vaccinate together and let's do something for the greater good. Well, and, and you know, Dave, I think that, you know, if you comparing us or our response to the United States, where our leaders have most frequently, I think, been in uh, sync with our public health officials in terms of the way to go and the, the decisions that need to be made. Whereas in the United States, the public health re- recommendations and the uh, um, political leadership often clashed. Uh, and, and I think that, that a lot of Americans paid a price uh, because of that. Yeah, there's politicizing an issue um, has, a, has an opportunity cost. And we've seen that to you know, tragic degrees um, in the United States. I, I agree with that. What are you looking for in terms of how does this, um, how do we um, ride out into the sunset? You know, how do you how do you see this kind of, you know, getting to a point where we can look back in retrospect and say that was something, you know, but it's behind us. Yeah, I'm. I think you know, it's 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 hard to to talk about that now when when there are still some parts of Canada that are really in the the like the the hardest part of a third wave with ICU admissions higher than they've ever been before for COVID-19, but I'm optimistic that with the vaccines that we have available and the number of doses that are coming into Canada, that that this summer we're going to be looking at a level of community protection that's going to be high enough to start relaxing some of these public health measures. And and again, optimistic that come school year, uh, there's going to be a proportion of our kids that are going to be able to be vaccinated and that we're going to be able to reach that level of population protection that will allow us to get more and more uh, back to a, a pre-pandemic life. Well, this is great. You got to promise that you come back at the next pandemic. <laughs> next time we uh, we go through this. Thank you so much for um, for taking the time. I think a lot of people will have you know come to um, terms with a lot of the science that has not always been. Uh, very clear. It's things are evolving so rapidly on the medical sphere for people that are are, are attuned and that are well versed on the subject. Imagine the layman that has to kind of deal with the emotions, and we're parenting our children, and we're just coming to terms with something that we had no preparation for. So I think this, you know, hopefully will be soothing to many people that needed it. So I feel soothed. So that's that's a good thing. Thank you so much. And um, I really hope you can uh, grace us with your presence again soon. Yeah, thanks, Dave. It's been fun. (laughs) 